0: Our agenda tonight is pretty simple. It's to close out the book of 1 Kings. And so we're going to pick up tonight in 1 Kings chapter 20. The book, we're focused mostly on unfinished business. Chapter 19, a very discouraged Elijah was on the run from the queen of the 10 tribes of Israel, Jezebel, who had threatened his life he has an encounter with the living God, God reminds him of who he is, promises him that although Elijah feels like he's the last man standing, that he's reserved 7,000 more who have not been unfaithful, who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And then he gives Elijah some instructions. The instructions involve three things, anointing a new king over Syria, as well as a new king over Israel, and then anointing a successor, Elisha. We finish out as he calls Elijah to ministry, and then oddly, Elijah and Elisha disappear off the pages of the book for the last few chapters. They're, uh, they're really not present. In fact, we're not told uh, uh, the stories of the anointing of Jehu um, or of uh, <laughs> Hazael of Syria. That's what's happening out of the scenery, beyond the boundaries of the story. Instead, we close out uh, the life and service of King Ahab. Just a few pieces for context since it's been quite a while. Israel right now, since the days following Solomon, has, de- has been divided into two separate kingdoms, and we've been kind of leapfrogging back and forth uh, following two different uh, dynasties. The Judean dynasty is directly descended from King David through Solomon Sun to sun to sun, and most of the reigns have been 40 years, 20 years, etc. The uh, uh, Israeli uh, rule of the 10 tribes of Israel, which is now headquartered in Samaria for its capital, um, <clears throat> has been a turnover of different families, usually through political assassination. But we've been in a time of relative stability under Omri. And his son Ahab, in fact, Ab- Ahab's son, uh, very briefly, just for two years, will take the throne after him. Um, and so, so this is the period of time that we are in, um, and we've been following King Ahab, who is he's labeled as being basically the worst thing to ever happen to Israel. And so here, we pick up uh, with Ahab going to war in verse 1 of chapter twenty. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his army together. Thirty-two kings were with him, and horses and chariots, and he went up and closed in on Samaria, remember that's the capital of the northern tribes of Israel, and fought against it. And he sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, your silver and your gold are mine, your best wives and children also mine. And the king of Israel answered, as you say, my lord, O king, I am yours and all that I have. And so um, (coughs) Ben-Hadad gathers up this allegiance that is a lot stronger than just the kingdom of Syria, but has contacted the leaders of surrounding areas. And through their allegiance, they basically come knocking at the door of Samaria with the city surrounded and demand not just surrender, but that they take a posture of service. It's not too different than what we saw in Jabesh Gilead a few uh, weeks ago when they were conquered uh, and put under service. And so basically what he says is, my demands are I'm taking everything out of your treasury, I'm taking the best of your harem, uh, and I'm also going to take your children captive to raise as my own. Um, And Ahab at this point doesn't put up a fight. He doesn't know what else to do, so he just says, I agree to your terms. But notice um, verse five, the messenger came again and said, thus says Ben-Hadad, I sent to you saying, deliver to me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. Nevertheless, I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time and they shall search your house and the houses of your servants and lay hands on whatever pleases you and take it away. Okay, and so the response to this surrender is basically an escalation. He says, while we're at it, I'm going to come in and I'm going to just go house to house, take everything I want, and I'm going to do it tomorrow. Um, and this, uh, this, is, this, is not, this is not service. This is demolishment. This is the destruction of the house of Israel. And so notice verse 7, the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Mark now and see how this man is seeking trouble. For he sent to me for my wives and my children, for my silver and my gold, and I did not refuse him. And all the elders and all the people said to him, do not listen or consent. Now, (laughs) Ahab hasn't really shown himself to be a strong leader. As we're going to see in a little bit, his wife is often the one who's pulling the strings and leading the kingdom. And so here, he goes to the elders to explain what's going on. And I don't know about you, but when I read that language and he says, mark now and see how this man is seeking trouble, it's almost as if King Ahab is making excuses, he basically says, look, I've done everything I can, and this is still the disaster that's come out. Uh, and then it's his people, specifically the elders of Israel, who counsel him and basically go, this is crazy. We can't give in to this guy. Um, and so, uh, so they said, don't listen, don't consent. Now, if you want to put a better spin on this, maybe he just needs to make sure all of Israel is with him before he puts up a fight, okay? Okay. Uh, but, but as we'll see with Ahab's character, um, he's really only good at pouting. That's the one thing he does consistently and successfully. Uh, and so here he takes their advice. Verse nine, he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, tell my Lord, the King, all that you first demanded of your servant, I will do, but this I cannot do. And he goes, I'll keep the original arrangement. You can have my treasury. You can ransack my harem. You can take my children, uh, but you can't have everything. And so, Ben-Hadad responds. He sent to him and said, The gods do so to me and more also if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all of the people who follow me. Which is basically, we're not going to leave anything standing. We're, we're going to take everything by force, whether you like it or not. Not a building will be standing. There won't even be enough dust left in Samaria to put in the pockets of my soldiers. Verse 11, the king of Israel answered, tell him, let not him who straps on his armor boast himself as he who takes it off. And so he answers here with a proverb, and the proverb is basically a high stakes version of don't count your chicken before they hatch. The suggestion he's making here is it's a lot easier to talk about victory when you're getting ready for war than to talk about it when you've come back for war. Putting on your armor and saying we're going to conquer is not the same thing as surviving the battle and being able to take your armor off for yourself again. And so verse 12, when Ben-Hadad heard this message as he was drinking with the kings in the booths, he said to his men, take your positions and they took their positions against the city. And so (coughs) notice here, not only... Has he promised to destroy Israel? But they're basically celebrating up front. Now, it may be that Ben-Hadad is doing this uh, just to get the troops riled, but what we can see is uh, that they are um, busy drinking, and that's their preparation for war. And then notice, out of nowhere, verse 13, behold, a prophet came near to Ahab king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord. So in the midst of these dire circumstances, a prophet shows up, an unnamed one, it's not Elijah, uh, just a prophet of God shows up with a message, and this is what he says, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Now we should recognize, again, uh, that Ahab has not been a faithful king to the God of Israel. He has not promoted his religion. In fact, he's allowed the cult of Baal to flourish. And even when uh, Baal was defeated, uh, he doesn't operate under full repentance. He basically um, gives in to the ministry of Elijah, but then his wife basically says, no, we're not doing this. And there's a full policy reversal and they're back to square one. Uh, And so notice here that, uh, that this prophet promises victory, not because of Israel's faithfulness, but to afresh demonstrate that there is only one true God, so that they may know that that the Lord is God. In fact, it's not just for their sake, but also for the Syrians. Verse 14, Ahab said, by whom? By whom are we going to be delivered? And the prophet said, thus says the Lord, by the servants of the governors of the districts. Then he said, who shall begin the battle? And he answered, you. Okay, now that first answer uh, is somewhat surprising because the word there for servants um, generally implies the untrained soldiers, okay, the infantry level. It's the word that's used of David when he shows up and stands before Goliath. Uh, And so it's either a description of a lack of age young men who have not yet married, immaturity, uh, or it's a description of a lack of achievement. Either way, it's a surprising military tactic. It's very similar back to in the book of Judges where God is working through Gideon and he gathers through Gideon all of the armies of Israel and then sends many of them home, whittling away the army until it's unbelievably small so that Israel will know that the victory is the Lord's. And so the plan here is counter uh, what you would expect. It also is worth pointing out that it provides, like it did for Gideon, an opportunity for faith. If Ahab is going to go out, he's going to go out reliant upon God to show up because he's at the end of his ropes. Verse 15, I also notice there that he has to begin the battle. In other words, he's got to have skin in the game. He's got to be right there at the front lines, which is not an uncommon request for Israel, uh, but definitely probably something that needs to be said to Ahab. Then he mustered the servants of the governors of the districts, and they were 232, okay, not a lot of people. And after them, he mustered all the people of Israel, 7,000. Still, not a very large group of people. And they went out at noon, while Ben-Had was drinking himself drunk, okay? And so once again, we see here uh, that part of God's plan involves getting the first strike in. They don't wait for Samaria to attack. They're still prepping and drinking, and Israel shows up and attacks. But who is this strike team? It's the 232 servants of governors. It's the young men. It's the unarmed or the uh, unskilled in battle that go in first as a raiding party. And so verse 17, the servants of the governors of the districts went out first and Ben-Hadad sent out scouts and they reported to him, men are coming out from Samaria. And he said, if they've come out for peace, take them alive. Or if they've come out for war, take them alive. And so he basically says, whatever's happening here, I want these men alive. Capture them, don't kill them. Now, it's a strange way for him to say this, isn't it? It sounds like the confused drunken ramblings of somebody who's not making good decisions. I don't know if this is a verbal mistake or just not good thinking, uh, but, (coughs) but either way, he underestimates these men. So verse 19, when they went out of the city, the servants of the governors of the districts and the army that followed them, and each struck down his man. So the 232, they come up to the front force and they take out the front force immediately, and that surprises, shocks, and shatters the courage of the Syrians. And so the Syrians fled, and Israel pursued them. But Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, escaped on a horse with horsemen. And so despite the numerical differences here, um, and the surprise ferocity of these young men, all of the Syrian army and all of his uh, alliance ends up fleeing And the king gets ahead of the fleeing and he escapes on a horse with horsemen. Verse 21, the king of Israel went out and struck the horses and chariots and struck the Syrians with a great blow. Then the prophet came near to the king of Israel and said, Come, strengthen yourself and consider well what you have to do. For in the spring, the king of Syria will come up against you. And so the prophet finishes this chapter after this great victory, basically saying, be prepared for round two. There's going to be a rematch next spring, and so you need to be prepared for it. Now, we should hear in the words of the prophet there exactly what's being suggested here, which is not just that the threat isn't over, but also that the work is not yet done. What went wrong with this battle? Why is it that Syria is going to return in the spring? It's because Ben-Hadad is alive. Okay, so verse 23, the servants of the king of Syria said to him, Their gods are gods of the hills, and so they were stronger than we. And so notice here, they recognize the significance of this military uh, victory is theological in nature. They can't say, man, I had no idea the Israelis were so strong, we weren't outnumbered. There's no explanation except, man, their gods were on their side. And then what they explain here is that the real problem was that they had the home field advantage They say, look, their gods are the gods of the hills, okay? Samaria's on a hill, Jerusalem's on a hill, Mount Zion, you know, they're familiar with these things. Uh, And on top of that, there's a military aspect to this too, which is that Syria's strength was in horses and chariots, which are not as great in the hill country as they are in the plains, okay? Um, But they understand this as being a theological problem. And so they can continue here And they say, but let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we, read their gods, will be stronger than Israel's. And do this, remove the kings each from his post and put commanders in their place and muster an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse and chariot for chariot. And so he says, okay, on top of that, we're going to rebuild all the way up to the same size and we're gonna replace all of the generals. We're gonna shuffle the deck. We're gonna go back to a blank slate and start again. Then, they say, we will fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And he listened to their voices and did so. Okay, and so now we move forward to round two, verse 26. In the spring, Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. Now, why do they show up in Aphek? They get away from the hills, right? They choose their fighting field. They enter into the land of Israel, but instead of going straight to the capital and surrounding it, they stop short in the lowlands of Israel and await, uh, you know, await Israel. Verse 27, the people of Israel were mustered and were provisioned and went against them. The people of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats, but the Syrians filled the country. And so once again, they're completely outnumbered, and we have this very descriptive picture here that it's just like a couple of shepherds had let their sheep out in contrast to, you know, uh, a woodstock worth of soldiers on the other side. The whole valley is filled uh, with Syrians. Verse 28, a man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said... The Lord is a God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys, therefore I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Okay, and so once again here, uh, the prophet says that God is going to give you the victory to show who God is, not just for Israel, but for the Syrians who have tried to put the God of Israel in a box, reduced him down to being equal with the local deities uh, who is going to be compromised here, okay? Um, And so, for the sake of his name, for the sake of his uh, being known, he's going to give them the victory today. Verse 29, they encamped opposite one another seven days. Then on the seventh day, the battle was joined, and the people of Israel struck down the Syrians, a hundred thousand foot soldiers in one day, and the rest fled to the city of Aphek, and the wall fell upon 27,000 men who were left. Now, we've seen this many times, okay, um, where God not only promises Israel the victory, but gets involved in supernatural ways. Sometimes it's storms. Sometimes, you know, it's like in the days of Joshua when the sun stands still. Here, the city that they fly into for refuge just collapses on top of them. Uh, You should be reminded here of the days of Joshua and the Battle of Jericho, right? It's almost as if Israel here is starting from scratch on remembering who God is and how this all works. Um, But the remnant of uh, the Syrian army flees into the city, and then for no explicable reason, the city just collapses on top of them and kills them, Uh, except, of course, for Ben-Hadad, the king. Ben-Hadad also fled, And entered an inner chamber in the city, away from the walls of the city, in the deep recesses of the center. And his servant said to him, Behold, now we've heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Let us put sackcloth around our waists and ropes on our heads and go to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. Okay? And so basically they have a plan here to wave the white flag and take on a posture of humility, ropes and sackcloth and mourning, and basically present themselves as servants. Now this is a completely different place than Ben-Hadad started, right? Who was not just going to settle for turning Israel into servants, uh, but was going to destroy the city entirely. Truly, uh, Ben-Hadad, or excuse me, Ahab was wise when he said it's easier to talk about victory while you're putting your armor on than taking it off. Because now they're taking it all the way off and replacing it uh, you know, with gunny sacks and tying ropes around their heads. This is an act of desperation. Okay, they're hoping that the king will be merciful uh, and notice that the plan is not so hopeful that Ben-Hadad joins the group. He sends his leaders out as representatives and he stays in hiding. Okay, Um, so (coughs) verse 32, they tied sackcloth around their waists and put ropes on their head and went to the king of Israel and said, your servant Ben-Hadad says, please let me live. And he said, does he still live? He is my brother. Now the men were watching for a sign, and they quickly took it up from him and said, Yes, your brother Ben-Hadad. Then he said, Go and bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came out to him, and he caused him to come up into the chariot. And Ben-Hadad said to him, The cities that my father took from your father I will restore, that you may estab- and you may establish bazaars for yourself in Damascus, as my father did in Samaria. And Ahab said, I will let you go on these terms. So he made a covenant with him and let him go. And so basically, Ben-Hadad comes out of hiding. Ahab invites him into his own chariot for a conversation. And he basically said, I'm going to restore the lands that my father had taken from Israel. I'll give back all the territory that we've taken. And you can set up uh, economically in my capital in Damascus in the same way that my father set up in yours. Now, it's worth pointing out, that this is a pretty smooth deal comparative to the one that ben Haddad had offered Ahab, right? Uh, uh, but what's more important here is that Ahab doesn't take any time to consult with the prophets or consider God's will. Um, in fact, when he identifies Ben-Hadad as a brother, whatever his reasons are for this, we're going to see that, uh, that this is not the way it's supposed to be. Um, the enemy of Israel, Ben-Hadad, his life should have been taken and Ahab doesn't go far enough. And so verse 35, a certain man of the sons of the prophets. This is the third uh, consecutive but different prophet that has shown up in this story. Remember, we had heard to Elijah that there were 7,000 men who had not bowed the knee to Baal. He's also not the only prophet functioning in Israel, Uh, and so God is rolling them out one after another, and uh, it's probably a helpful way to be because, as we'll discover, King Ahab isn't fond of God's prophets, and so, you know, jumping out of the corner being a new person, you know, one that shows up at the bazaar, one, you know, that's at his bathhouse is probably a helpful way to go. But here, one of them shows up um, and said to his fellow at the command of the Lord, strike me, please. And so he turns to another prophet, he hands him a weapon, and he says, I want you to injure me. And the prophet refuses. The man refused to strike him. Then he said to him, because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you've gone from me, a lion shall strike you down. And as soon as he departed from him, a lion met him and struck him down. Now, you may remember going back in the book, we saw a similar occasion where a prophet had stood before the king and he was told not to eat anything on the way or to stay in the city, not to return the way he went, but to complete the circuit. And another prophet says, hey, why don't you come over to my house for dinner? And he ends up being eaten by a lion for his disobedience. Again, we recognize here not just the high stakes for the prophets, but if God is going to keep his word for those who work for him, if he's going to take that significantly, how's it going to fare for Ahab? Okay, that's, that's the reason why we're told this story. And so just as he said, as soon as he departed from him, a lion met him and struck him down. Verse 37, he found another man and said, strike me, please. And the man struck him, struck him and wounded him. So the prophet departed and waited for the king by the way, disguising himself with a bandage over his eyes. And so because of this wound, he wears a bandage and he waits to speak to the king in disguise. Verse 39, as the king passed, he cried to the king and said, your servant went out into the midst of the battle and behold, a soldier turned and brought a man to me and said, guard this man. If by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life or else you shall pay a talent of silver. And so he sets up this persona and this backstory. And he basically says, I was a soldier on the front lines, and I was given a commission to guard a prisoner of war on the cost of my life. Okay? Now, in the ancient world, this isn't actually that uncommon. Even in the Roman Empire, uh, we see that this is still functioning. And so uh, when there's an earthquake while Paul and Barnabas are in prison in Philippi, and the earthquake opens up the jail and puts out all the lights. The Philippian jailer is all but ready to take his own life because he knows what it means if his if his death row uh, death row uh, criminals get away. It's his life for theirs. Okay, it's the same idea here, and so he pre- presents this story. And then verse 40, as your servant was busy here and there, he was gone, which let's just recognize is a terrible excuse right he basically says I just got distracted doing other things and I turned around and he was gone right that's his excuse the king of Israel said to him so shall your judgment be you yourself have decided it he says you've got what's coming to you now there's one other thing that I wanted to mention here that I forgot the choice was death or a talent of silver a talent is a whole lot of money way more than the annual pay of a soldier okay um he's not going to have this money. It's like the the debtor in Jesus's parable, who's thrown into debtor's prison and has nothing to pay it, okay? Uh, there's no option there, but he says, basically, your punishment is just. You acted like a fool. Now, if you can remember back to Nathan before David, this is a setup, okay? The prophet has engaged this whole thing, and it's funny here because he says here, so shall your judgment be, you yourself have decided it, but it's actually him judging himself for his own behavior, okay? It's, it's got a few layers here. It's a little bit meta. Uh, and so, <clears throat> so here he speaks and he says, you've got what's coming because you let the man get away, right? But that's actually what Ahab has done with Ben-Hadad, okay? He hasn't been faithful to the commission that God has given him. He's let him slip away and now it's going to be his life, for the king of Syria's verse 41 then he hurried to take the bandage away from his eyes and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets and so not only does the wound validate his story as a frontline soldier But somehow it also hid his face enough that he wasn't recognized for who he was. And so here we get the great reveal and he goes, oh, okay, this is more than I thought it was. Verse 42, he said to him, thus says the Lord, because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I had devoted to destruction. That language there, devoted to destruction, that's the holy war language that we encountered all the way back in Deuteronomy. It has to do with the fact that uh, when Israel goes out to war. They're not fighting in their own military interest, but are actually operating as an instrument of God's judgment. Okay? And so, so basically, it's as if the judge hands down the sentence and Israel operating as bailiff goes, I know the judge said this sentence, but I'm going to let you off. Okay? That's the problem with what's going on here. Okay? Therefore, he says, your life shall be for his life and your people for his people. Now, that first one's going to happen pretty soon, okay, in just a few years, but he also points out that Israel as a people, the 10 tribes that make up the northern nations, that they're also going to be handed over, and that's not going to happen for many generations. But again, we see Israel's fate is moving towards that direction. Verse 43, the king of Israel went to his house, vexed and sullen, and came to Samaria. He's bummed vexed and sullen. He just, he just is sad. In fact, this word here for sullen, uh, it, it's literally he turned his face to the wall. It's like he gets in bed and he just doesn't get out. He just mopes. Okay. Now, chapter 21, verse 1. Now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the place of Ahab, king of Samaria. Now, there's a change in story here Uh, a change in focus. So the death sentence is given, and then we are given another story here uh, about Ahab and a neighbor's vineyard. Interestingly, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this story actually occurs before chapter 20. Uh, Chapter 21, as as its entirety, occurs earlier, okay? Um, now, there's no reason why, uh, why we should say that that's a better way to read the story, but it does point out something that I think is pretty clear here, which is that what we're told about in chapter 21 doesn't necessarily chronologically follow what we just read. Okay? What we're doing in these closing chapters is laying out the indictments that lead to the final judgment of Ahab. And so here is another case. Okay. We move to a different episode here um, to see a similar problem. In fact, it's one where Ahab behaves like Ahab. Uh, so notice here, what happens is that Nahab, uh, Naboth, who's a Jezreelite, has a vineyard in his city um, beside the palace of the king of Samaria. And so just beneath Samaria is this suburb, if you will, of Jezreel, and there's a vineyard there. Verse 2 after this, Ahab said to Naboth, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it's near my house, and I'll give you a better vineyard for it, or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value and money. And so he says, hey, I'd really like to buy your vineyard. I've got plenty of them, so you can take your pick, any piece of land that you like, or whatever you think is fair, I will pay you. But notice how the man responds, verse 3. Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Remember here that in Israel real estate didn't function like it does in in modern America. Uh, Real estate was directly tied tied to tribal inheritance. It was passed down from family to family and even if you because of a great debt had to sell your land it could be redeemed by a family member and it would be restored to you no matter what every 50 years. Okay, and so generational poverty was greatly limited in Israel, but also it was tied to the fact that all of Israel didn't belong to the people of Israel. They were tenants and God had provided the land. And so Naboth here, he's not interested in God's inheritance. He's not interested in the way things are played out. He just wants this vineyard because it's convenient to his house. But the man is once again faithful. He says, the Lord forbid. He says, Why would I disinherit myself from the gift that God has given Israel? How good would money be that you give me in exchange for the gift that God has given not just me, but the descendants who follow me? Verse 4, Ahab went into his house, vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. Now we see why the story is here, right? We find out that this is generally how Ahab deals with bad news, okay? Bad news of you're going to be judged for your actions, and now bad news uh, because the guy just says no, okay? Um, And so he's vexed and sullen. He won't eat. He's not sleeping. He's just moping in his bed. Verse 5, but Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said to him, give me your vineyard for money, or else if you please, I'll give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I'll give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Now remember here, Jezebel is uh, from Phoenicia. She's not an Israelite. She's a foreign wife. Uh, And so basically, what's about to play out is standard Phoenician politics. She says, this isn't a problem. This is just, you know, a small speed bump that I can take care of for you. And this is her plan, verse 8. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. Now remember, these elders and leaders are not just, uh, you know... um, executive branch governors. This is the judicial system. These are the local judges who hear all the cases. Basically, she's giving a top-down conspiracy instruction for how they are to handle a particular case. That's what's going on here. Um, In other words, she sees herself and her husband as above the authority and because they make the laws, they make the laws, right? And so, here is her plan. Verse 9, she wrote in the letters, proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And we see many occasions in the Bible where, uh, where a leader of a nation proclaims a fast. It's something they can do. Um, and so she sets it up at the local level and she says, all right, let's design it so your city is having a fast. Recognize here that this is part of what makes the crime so heinous because the, it happens under the veil of religious uh, piety, right? Um, And so she sets up this fast, and then she says, put him in a really prestigious place where everybody can see, and then put at his left and his right, verse 10, set two worthless men opposite him, and let them bring charges against him, saying, you've cursed God and the king, then take him out and stone him to death. And so they set up false witnesses here, who are going to be with him during the fast as he sat before the people, and then jump out of their chairs and go, you won't believe what Naboth just said. He both cursed the God of Israel, which is blasphemy, and he cursed the king, which is treason, okay? Uh, The consequence of, uh, which is uh, capital punishment, which with his death. And so, um, verse, uh, verse 10, take him out and stone him to death. Verse 11, the men of his city, the elders and leaders who lived in the city did as Jezebel had sent word to them, as was written in the letters that she had sent to them they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people and the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him and the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people saying Naboth cursed God and the king so they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones then they sent to Jezebel saying Naboth has been stoned he is dead okay and so if he won't give up the vineyard then she'll get rid of him she'll get rid of the problem and take it By force. Verse 15. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive, but dead. She says, Good news. The owner died. You can have that land now. Verse 16. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. Notice here, We're not told if Ahab is in on the plot or not, but he clearly doesn't care, okay? He has what he wanted. He completely, you know, he's like a five-year-old kid who's offered ice cream, and he just wipes the snot off his nose, and it's fine, right? In fact, notice where the prophet finds Ahab, verse 17, the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who's in Samaria. Behold, he's in the vineyard of Naboth, where he's gone to take possession, and so he goes right to the scene of the crime, if you will, where, where Ahab is enjoying his new vineyard. Verse 19, you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, have you killed and also taken possession? Okay. Now, I want you to notice this because I think it's significant here. If Ahab was wont to do, he could say, I didn't kill anybody. In fact, we can even imagine Jezebel saying, well, I didn't throttle the guy. I didn't put my fingers around his neck. I didn't kill him. Um, But especially with Ahab, it's interesting here because what kills Naboth? It's not Ahab's activity, but his passivity. He allows this to happen. It's his name and his signature, right? It's his seal on the letters, and therefore it's his command, We need to recognize here uh, that uh, Elijah isn't sent to Jezebel. She's going to get her own consequences. That's true. But the final and ultimate responsibility lies with Ahab as king. And we need to understand that that's the way that uh, authority functions in the Bible. Authority, biblically, is not about privilege but about responsibility. And so even when we go back to the garden... Uh, before Eve is created, God gives the command to Adam to not eat of the tree. And then, when he comes and he asks, he comes looking for Adam. Adam, where are you? And he says, have you broken the command which I gave you? And then when he judges Adam, only Adam does he bring up the command again and say, because you have broken the command which I gave you, the emphasis is there. Once again, it doesn't mean that Eve didn't have her own choices. It doesn't mean that she won't have consequences for her action, but Adam is held responsible for the position he plays, both in his family and in the garden as it was designed. In the same way here, Ahab is held responsible. It reminds me of that lyric uh, from, the, from the band Rush. If you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. Okay? We don't avoid responsibility within action. In fact, we don't avoid accountability with an action. There's no excuse. There's no removal uh, of the responsibility here. And so Elijah comes to him and he says, uh, he says, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. That phrase is interesting, isn't it? You've sold yourself. The idea here is, is one of covetousness, Right? In fact, when we look at the, the sins that have gone wrong here and just run down the roster of the Ten Commandments, we have both murder as well as covetousness. But this language here points us to the problem, uh, the problem of covetousness, which is that it, it's something we sell ourselves to. It's an economic term used for an economic idolatry. Okay, um, Like is often said, the problem is not uh, that Naboth had Uh, or didn't have, or that Ahab had or didn't have, or even the fact that Naboth wanted, it's that that vineyard had taken hold of him, that he surrendered to it, and it now acted as his God. I mean, Ahab acts as if the one thing that will make his life perfect is a vineyard. If I only had this one thing, everything would be fine. Until I have this thing, life is not worth living, so I'm just going to starve to death, right? That's idolatry. Um, But it's also slavery. And so he sells himself into this action. And that's how idolatry always functions in our lives. We never commit sins against other people until we commit the ultimate sin and the first sin of forsaking the worship of God, elevating something else that he's created to being ultimate. And so he says here, I'll bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up. I will cut off from Ahab every male bond or free in Israel, okay? And so notice here, what he says he's going to do is end the dynasty, as we've seen many times in the northern tribes. Verse 22, I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger which you have provoked me in because you have made Israel to sin. Okay, and so notice this is bigger than just the vineyard. It's his entire... um, you know, life being hung in the balances here. And that includes him leading Israel to sin at, again, Jezebel's request. Um, And notice here that this is the pattern. This is what happened with Jeroboam, Israel's first king. It's what happened uh, with Basha and Ahijah, the second dynasty that came through. And now now the Omri dynasty is failing in the same way. Verse 23, and of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Okay, now that's a pretty dark uh, statement, and we'll see there's going to be more to this, but the idea here um, is one of not being buried. It's a death of shame, right, where the corpse is just left exposed. And the idea here, you shouldn't think of, uh, you know, somebody's pets. These are wild dogs roaming Israel, or roaming the streets of the cities in Israel. Um, and so she's going to get consequences as well. Verse 24, anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. Anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heaven shall eat. Okay. And so there's familial judgment here. Um, there's shameful deaths coming. And then look at verse 25. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, enticed. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord had cast out before the people of Israel. Okay, and so here we get kind of a commentary on his whole rule, and he's held up against all the kings of uh, Israel, and he comes out the blackest. He comes out the darkest with the worst record. But notice verse 27, when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh, and fasted, and lay in sackcloth, and went about dejectedly. He responds the same way. He takes on the traditional religious garments of repentance and mourning, uh, but he also just mopes about the sentence, okay? But notice this, verse 28, the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, have you now, have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring disaster in his days, but in his son's day, I will bring disaster upon his house, Now, like I said, it makes sense to think of this story as predating what we just read because it makes the context of the judgment statement we read at the end through through the man of God make a lot more sense, okay? Because Ahab has already been to this place, and because he humbled himself before the Lord, he doesn't plan reversal, he doesn't deal with Jezebel, he doesn't do the right thing, but he does mourn before the Lord, God dials it back. God is interested uh, in Ahab, even Ahab's repentance, and so he takes even a sign of it as being tentatively enough to defer the sentence, okay? I think there's a few different ways that you can think about this. I'm not suggesting that either of these are what's happening. They're just, just the best way to think about it. One is, basically, by deferring the sentence, it gives time for Ahab to live the rest of his life, Um. I don't know how many of you saw the film years and years ago called Constantine, which was just a really super odd comic book story about an exorcist. Um, but at the end of it, as he faces off with the devil himself, which, side note, is one of my favorite portrayals of the devil, because he's just, he's just the sweetest old man, except for the tar dripping off his feet. It's just a very different picture than we usually get. Um, but basically, the devil comes calling and demands his soul Uh, and and God graciously, a surprising thing for a Hollywood movie, graciously redeems him and delivers him from his own consequences. But in delivering him, he doesn't just take him off to heaven, but puts him back on earth. And the idea is basically, okay, now you've got a choice. You've got a choice, and you can live out your life for God. You've been set free from the consequences of your own crime or not. But you're going to have to show who you really are, right? That, I think, is a good way to to understand what's going on here. God defers the sentence, and that gives Ahab time to show his true character. It gives him time to show the fullness or the truthfulness of his repentance. We see a similar thing with the city of Nineveh. I'm sure you're familiar with the story of Jonah, who's sent uh, to call Nineveh to repentance, and Jonah is resistant. Not because he's afraid of the Ninevites or what they'll do to him, but because he's afraid that if they repent, God will deliver them. He knows that God is kind and forgiving, and he doesn't want that for Israel's enemies. Um, And so what happens is Jonah finally shows up after his arm is quite uh, extensively twisted. Um, (coughs) and, And his message, by the way, of repentance is not one with any out. It's not one with any option. This is his sermon to the Ninevites. Forty days and then comes judgment. Right? He doesn't leave any opening. He doesn't say repent. He doesn't even want to imply that's a possibility. But unlike Jonah, everyone else in the book of, the Jonah, of Jonah is pliant to the will of God. And so the king goes, maybe God If we repent nationally, maybe he'll not bring this judgment on us. And he calls for a fast that's so extensive, it's the most extensive one in the Bible, they don't even feed their animals, right? The whole community as one. And so God spares them. But unfortunately, that's not the end of the story for Nineveh. What happens is a few generations later, God raises up another prophet, this prophet's Nahum, and he testifies of a judgment coming on Nineveh, and that one comes to pass, and that's the end of Nineveh, okay? God gives them a chance. He is willing to bring repentance, or to respond to repentance and give forgiveness, uh, but it's not a free pass. It's not a get out of jail free card. It's an opportunity. Repentance is something that uh, the book of Romans, or one of Paul's other letters, says we need to bear fruits of. John the Baptist says this as well bear fruits worthy of repentance. Um, and so. So here, there's an opportunity for Ahab to show his true colors and the depth of his repentance, Um, but unfortunately, uh, Ahab is who he is in the deepest, darkest part, and he doesn't surrender himself fully to the Lord here, uh, but just does enough to defer his sentence. Chapter 22, for three years, Syria and Israel continued without war, okay? And so he's made this peace treaty with Syria, and that works for three years. But, verse 2, in the third year, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. Okay, And so now we see the king who's reigning over the two tribes in the southern kingdom of Judah, and he comes to spend time with Ahab. Now, here's something you need to know to make sense of what's about to happen, and um, Chronicles tells us that Jehoshaphat and Ahab have made a political pact through the marrying of their children, okay? They're not just on good terms with one another, they're not just family, they've actually made a marital alliance, uh, just like we've seen them do with other nations, okay? And so, verse 3, the king of Israel said to his servants, do you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us? And we keep quiet and do not take it out of the hands of the king of Syria." Now, it may be here that Raboth-Gilead is actually one of the lands that was taken, that was promised to be returned, and it still hasn't been, okay? And so what's going on here, Ahab's going, you know, I thought I had this all worked out, but he still hasn't kept his promises. He's like, while you're here, I could really use your support. And so he said to Jehoshaphat, verse 4, will you go with me to battle at Ramoth-Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, as... Uh, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. So he just affirms the alliance. He says, we stand with you. And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, inquire first for the word of the Lord. Remember, Jehoshaphat here is a good king. He's ruling as a descendant of David uh, over the people. In fact, we'll learn about in Chronicles, he brings about significant reform and revival in Israel. Okay. We haven't gotten that story yet. We will. Uh, But he's first concerned and goes, okay, I'm with you, but let's make sure God's with us, right? That hasn't occurred to Ahab. It's not really on his radar. Uh, But Jehoshaphat says, I'm only in if God is, okay? Uh, And so, verse 6, the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, shall I go to battle against Ramoth-Gilead, or shall I refrain? Okay, I want you to notice a few things here. First off, these people he gathers are just labeled the prophets. Okay? They're not the men of God. We've seen that title. They're not the prophets of the Lord. They're just a group of prophets, and there's a suspicious aspect in their number. There's 400 of them. Okay? Now, if you pay attention to the numbers in the book of 1 Kings, we learn about all of these prophets of Baal and of Ashtoreth that are ruling or are operating under Jezebel's sanction. And when they show up at the mountain and challenge Elijah, 400 of them are missing. Okay. So it may even be that these 400 have been conveniently recast as prophets of Israel. Now, the second thing you need to understand here is that these men are on the royal payroll. They eat at the king's table. As we've seen over and over again, the prophets that God sends don't take any benefit. For their message because they're not for hire, right? But these ones literally work for the king and they have a vested interest in his happiness, okay? And so he goes, oh yeah, I've got tons of prophets. Let's talk to them. Jehoshaphat, though, shows a little bit of suspicion. And so he gathers these 400 and he asks, shall I go to battle against Ramoth Gilead or shall I refrain? And they said, go up for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here another prophet of the Lord of whom we may inquire? That word there, another, isn't actually in the Hebrew. What he actually says, is "Is there not a prophet of the Lord still that we can inquire of? He basically says, do you not have any real prophets? Is there no one we can ask for a second opinion? Right? In verse 8, the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, there is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, But I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say so. And so he says, well, there's this one guy, and we're introduced to Micaiah for the first time. And he says, but I don't like talking to Micaiah because he never has good news for me. Now, the reason is pretty evident to us as readers, right? It's because Ahab is worthy, deserving of judgment, And so when God speaks directly to Ahab through Micaiah, it's bad news, okay? And so he's just created distance. He doesn't want to hear. In fact, maybe this explains why we have this rotation of prophets earlier, because basically Ahab stays away away from anyone who has bad news for him. And so he says there's one, and notice Jehoshaphat is greatly concerned about this commentary. He says, that's a bad thing to say. You you can't, he he knows that there's no theological soundness here. uh, And so he just lightly rebukes him. He says, don't say that. Verse nine, the king of Israel summoned an officer and said, bring quickly Micaiah, the son of Imlah. Now the king of Judah, uh, excuse me, the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones, arrayed in their robes at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets were prophesying before them. Okay, so notice the setting here. They're in their royal garb, they're sitting together, they each have a throne, they're out in public because probably the, uh, the throne room in Samaria can't hold 400 prophets. And so they're out here, and there's all these people who are just loudly prophesying good things in front of them. While they're sitting there, verse 11, Zedekiah, the son of Chenaniah, made himself horns of iron and says, thus says the Lord, with these you shall push the Syrians until they're destroyed. He has an object lesson right he's got a prop and so he takes these horns and he says just like a bull would gore uh, so also you're going to gore Syria it's good news again okay verse 12 all the prophets prophesied so and said go up to ramoth-gilead and triumph for the lord will give it into the hand of the king and the messenger who went to summon micaiah said to him behold the words of the prophet with one accord are favorable to the king Let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. So either this messenger is concerned for Micaiah and says, I would really encourage you to think before you speak. Or the king has sent this prompt. He's like, I want you to come and prophesy for me and here's what I want you to say. Either way, the test, once again, the question is, are we going to speak for what the king wants to hear or are you going to speak for the Lord? That's the tension of this whole story. Verse 14, Micaiah said, as the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. And when he had come to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth-Gilead to battle, or shall we refrain? And he answered and said, Go up and triumph. The Lord will give it to the hand of the king. And so he just parrots the same thing that this whole room full of prophets is saying. He just joins the chorus. And although, um, although it's not common for, uh, for Hebrew narrative to add Uh, descriptive language for how things are said. Uh, We could probably add here, sarcastically, right? He says it in such a way that the king knows he's not being up front. And so he pushes him. Verse 16, the king said to him, how many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Well, I would assume this is probably the first time, right? But since Jehoshaphat is present he says do I always have to tell you to be honest with me right that's the one thing that Ahab never wants honesty but he pushes him in verse 17 he speaks honestly he says I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd and the Lord said these have no master let each return to his home in peace and so he says, I saw a vision and the armies of Israel were scattered and there was no one to lead them right he's prophesying here the death of Ahab and then it's almost odd. He says, these have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. That's shalom, right? That's a relatively positive word here. He sees the end of the rule of Ahab as a win for the people of Israel, okay? In verse 18, the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me but evil? And Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on the throne And all the hosts of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And so the first vision he talks about is what's going to happen on the battlefield. But now the second vision, he sees the heavens itself opened and all of God's court gathered around him. Verse 20, the Lord said, who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, by what means? And he said, I will go out and I'll be a lying spirit in the mouth of all of his prophets. And he said, you're to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these, your prophets, for the Lord has declared disaster for you. And so he pulls back the curtain here and he says, what's really happening here is not just that your prophets want to stay on your payroll, but God is actually deceiving them To deceive you. Now, that can make us uncomfortable. We can go, wait, what is this? Isn't God, you know, the God of light and the God of truth? Why would he be comfortable with this lie? But you need to remember the context here. By the time that Ahab goes to war, he knows about the lying spirit and it's been labeled a lie. This is hardly dishonest, okay? The idea here is basically just uh, Micaiah, whether he sees this vision or he's being parabolic. I'll leave it up to you to decide, but either way, he's basically saying, I know you're going to go at your own peril. I know you're going to follow this through. God's told me that this is what's going to come to pass, uh, but you should know that it's a lie. You should understand here that this is, this is what's going on and that, and that this is also part of God's judgment. You may remember in the book of Romans, um, it talks about how, how all we of human beings have um, uh, we are without a excuse because we have um, taken the invisible attributes of God that are clearly seen in creation and have suppressed that truth and unrighteousness. And I like that language there. It, almost, it always makes me think of, the, uh, of like a suitcase that won't close, right? The idea is that we're sitting on the truth and holding it back. There's an active resistance to what we know, okay? But it goes on and it says, therefore God has given them over, to a lie. Okay, that's that's the heart of Ahab. The truth is right here. It's present in the one faithful one who he's even asked to speak for God, and he's not going to hear this advice. He is given over to a deception. As strange as that sounds, he's all in here. Um, he will not take the, voice, uh, the advice of Micaiah. And remember, this is the same God who, had a very external and very convenient demonstration of repentance, was willing to dial back for Ahab, for the same king. The option here is the same option that God always lays out. He says in either Isaiah or Ezekiel, if I call for judgment on a person and they repent, will I bring that judgment to pass? He says, of course not. He says, then again, if they repent and then they go back to their own ways, then the judgment will come, right? And so here, this is an opportunity to demonstrate the depths of, of Ahab's depravity, all the cards are on the table, okay? If if God is playing destiny poker here, he's playing with his whole hand revealed. <laughs> but look at verse 24. Zedekiah, the son of Chaniah, came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek. He slaps him and he says, how did the spirit of the Lord go from me to speak to you? And so notice here, Zedekiah, he's got skin in the game, right? He's got a stake in this. Here, he's been labeled as being... Uh, deceived himself by a lying spirit and misleading the king this is his livelihood and the idea of a slap here is is not just a physical provocation it's a challenge right Uh, think of you know the gloves and Sir Galahad and things like that that's that's what we're talking about here it's a challenge he's challenging the ministry of Micaiah and he basically says uh, kind of cryptically we'll see who really speaks for the Lord He says, you really think the spirit has left me and is now speaking through you, right? He's challenging his ministry. Verse 26, the king of Israel said, seize Micaiah and take him back to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, thus says the king, put this fellow in prison, feed him meager rations of bread and water until I come in peace. And this still fascinates me about the kings of Israel in particular. They have this understanding of the power of prophecy but not the sovereignty of God. They still, he still thinks that Micaiah is the problem, like somehow Micaiah is going to show up on the front lines and stab him in the back. And so he throws him in prison and he says, don't let him out until his words don't come true. Right? But notice how Micaiah responds. Verse 28, Micaiah said, if you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, hear all you peoples. Now, what is that? Why does he say that? He's not just stating the obvious. He's not saying based on what I just said, you're not coming back. What he's doing is going back to Deuteronomy 18. What he's doing is reminding all of the court of the laws of the prophets that if they say something comes to pass and it doesn't, then they should be put to death, okay? And with that is also a subtle rebuke of what should be done to the 400 prophets who so easily say, victory, victory, right? And so he calls everybody to pay attention. He basically doubles down here. And he says, you're going to know that I'm God's prophet because this is going to come to pass. Verse 29, so the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah went up to Ramoth Gilead and the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you wear your robes. Now, part of this plan I think is pretty easy to understand, right? He basically says he hedges his bets here. He goes, I'm sure we're going to be victorious, but just in case, I'm going to do this in disguise, What's weird to me about this plan is he convinces the other king to go out there in full royal garb, okay? Now, I'll be honest, I've never studied uh, military tactics throughout history, but I've always been blown away when I've seen pictures of militaries, especially during like the Revolutionary War and such, that were so formalized, from a distance you can tell the difference between a general and a soldier. I just will never understand that as a tactic. You might as well just paint a bullseye on the face of the most important people, Right, And so clearly his plan here is to just be one of the unknown masses to keep himself safe. Okay. Now I want to remind you of something that we already saw. When his judgment and his death was prophesied by that prophet a few chapters ago, what did he come in disguise as? Just a soldier. A wounded soldier. Okay, And as we're going to see, this, this is... Uh, As it turns out, not a good protection plan, but another part of God's sovereign plan. And so he tells Jehoshaphat to dress royally. He disguises himself, verse 31, the king of Syria had commanded the 32 captains of his chariots, fight with neither the small nor the great, but only with the king of Israel. He says, we have one job today. Cut off the head, right? We're going to take care of Ahab. He's your only target. Run past everyone else, okay? Okay verse 32, when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, it's surely the king of Israel. Why? Because he's in a big gold chariot in royal robes, right? And so they begin to chase after Jehoshaphat. So they turned to fight against him and Jehoshaphat cried out. And when the captains of the chariot saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. And so either he identifies himself as not being Ahab or they get close enough to see that it's not really him, they give up. But notice this, verse 34, a certain man... He's unnamed, just rando soldier number three, right? A certain man drew his bow at random, okay? The word here in the Hebrew is in innocence. He's not even trying to hit anybody is the idea here. He just draws his bow and shoots it. He's probably the least enthusiastic soldier in all of Syria's army. He's just trying to look like he's in the fight and keep his distance, right? And so he drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel, notice, between the scale armor and the breastplate. Okay, basically, he's in the ancient equivalent of body armor, right, of a bulletproof vest. Uh, and he gets hit right in the scene, right in the one place where he has no protection. Okay. This is not just a statistical anomaly, right? This is God's destined program for Ahab that he can't escape with a disguise or wearing extra armor and keeping his distance, right? Uh, this, this arrow is destined it's shot from the very hand of God. Okay. And so, uh, therefore, he said to the driver of the chariot, turn around and carry me out of battle for I am wounded. Right? Just like that disguise of the soldier we saw earlier when he was judged. And the battle continued that day and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians until evening he died. Now, it may be here the reason that he's propped up is so that he can see what's happening. Or more likely, it's so that Israel can see him and not despair, right? And so as long as he can, he stays standing in his chariot, but he is literally bleeding out. And so it says here, until evening he died and the blood of the wound flowed into the bottom of the chariot. His chariot just fills with blood. And about sunset, a cry went through the army, every man to his city and every man to his country. Right? With with there being no king, they just, they just disperse um, and leave the battle. So, verse 37, the king died and was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king in Samaria, and they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria, and the do- dogs licked up his blood, and the prostitutes washed themselves in it according to the word of the Lord that he had spoken. And so, <clears throat> probably here, probably here the idea is uh, you know, that the chariot is pulled over to the chariot wash, but it's also where these prostitutes are taking a bath, and so they're bathing in the blood of the king. But remember here that these are not just um, red light district employees. These are part of the religious institutions of Baal worship, right? There, there is a poetic justice to this reality. Um, but also, just as was said here, dogs come and they're licking at the blood in the chariot, Um, just as the prophet had said. Um, Verse 39. Now the rest of the acts of Ahab and all that he did, the ivory house that he built and all the cities that he built, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of Kings of Israel? So Ahab slept with his fathers, and uh, Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his place. Now remember, we're seeing all of these threads of judgment come together, and so Ahab loses his life, but his lineage is going to continue one more generation into his son Ahaziah, right? Just like God talked about that delay. And we get here in verse 41, um, (coughs) some background information on Jehoshaphat. For the most part, the author of Kings has been following the kings of Israel, but he's been using the kings of Judah to keep pace, okay? And so we finished another reign in Israel, and so now we go back and we start again in uh, Judea with, uh, with um, Jehoshaphat. And so Jehoshaphat, the son of Asa, began to reign over Judah in his fourth year of Ahab, king of Israel. Jehoshaphat was 35 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 25 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Azuba, the daughter of Shelai. And he walked in all the ways of Asa, his father. He did not turn aside from it, doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. Okay, and so in contrast to Ahab here, Jehoshaphat is a good king, one of the four that happened in Judea uh, over or in Judah over the course of um, their history. Yet, the high places were not taken away and the people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. And so his reforms weren't complete, but overall he was faithful to the Lord and did the right thing. And then notice here what we already know, verse 44, Jehoshaphat also made peace with the king of Israel. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoshaphat and his might are showed in how he warred, and are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? So now we've had reference to two books with Chronicles in the title. One of them, which is the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah, is what we call First and Second Chronicles. The other is not part of our Scriptures. Okay, but like I said, First and Second Kings tends to lean heavily on those rules or on those reigns. Okay. Um, verse 46 from the land he has exterminated the remnant of the male cult prostitutes who remained in the days of his father Asa so he takes things forward now notice this description that comes next because this is also (coughs) a benchmark in the history of Judah there was no king in Edom a deputy was king okay so just like the days of Solomon Edom is not a threat in the days of Judah or excuse me, in the days of Jehoshaphat. And then notice secondly, Jehoshaphat made ships of Tarshish to go to Ophir for gold. That's also like Solomon. He's sending out merchants to go to the faraway land of Ophir to gather up gold. That's what made Solomon, right? But they did not go for the ships were wrecked at ezion Geber, which is basically the starting harbor, okay? They have a bad storm and the ships. They never get to go out. Um, And so he's a good king, but the glory days of Israel are past. And here we have this side-by-side comparison between him and Solomon to make sure, or to make clear here um, that. And then verse 49, Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, said to Jehoshaphat, let my servants go with your servants in the ship. But Jehoshaphat was not willing. It was foreigners who were traveling on the ships of Solomon because that's how big peace reigned. But even, even Ahab's people... Jehoshaphat wouldn't travel with, right? It's a limitation. It's not as big. Verse 50, Jehoshaphat slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, his father, and Jehoram, his son, reigned in his place. Okay. So we've transitioned and we won't return to the kings of Judah until we get to the rule of Jehoram. But here we have to deal with Ahab's son as Haziah. As Isaiah, verse 51, the son of Ahab began to reign over Israel in Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigned two years over Israel. Even in this intro description, we can see that something is going to go wrong, that the words of the prophets are going to be fulfilled, which is one of the primary messages of kings, that the kings of Israel and kings of Judah pale in comparison to the king of kings, who calls the shots. Verse 52 he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father, in the way of his mother, and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, who made Israel to sin." Again, I want you to recognize here that this is despite watching the life that his father lived. And despite, I assume before his death, I don't remember offhand, probably witnessing the death of his mother as well. Despite hearing the words of the prophets and knowing the history of Israel, He chooses the same path. He sells himself into covetousness. He follows the idolatrous gods. Verse 53, he served Baal and worshipped him and provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger in every way that his father had done. Again, God doesn't bring judgment on uh, Ahaziah for the sins of Ahab. Ahaziah enters into the sins of his father. And so the book ends here with another closed cycle uh, and Second Kings will open up with the ministry of Elijah as it's moving towards transition to Elisha in and during the, the short reign of Ahab's son Ahaziah. And so that's where we'll pick up next week. Let's pray and close. Father, these words can seem distant from our circumstances today because who are we? We're not kings, we're not policymakers. we don't set the religious agenda for the world. And because the nature of having prophets who testify and clearly lay out instructions and even pronounce judgment and then seeing it come to pass, it just seems so foreign from us. But the underlying realities that we've seen tonight of your character, uh, of both justice and mercy of continuous uh, providing for yourself a witness. That's just as true in our lives, Lord. And so I pray, Lord, that your kindness would lead us to repentance and that we wouldn't seek to take advantage um, and to take the length of rope you give us and use it to hang ourselves, Lord, that we wouldn't um, wander far away. Um, instead, Lord, let us be swift to hear your word and respond uh, and bear fruit worthy of repentance, turn around fully and completely. Lord, we know uh, that the worship of Baal and all of the idols that we present in our lives are not alternate ways of living that you don't like, they're destructive ways uh, that destroy us and those around us. And so what you offer us instead is a life that is life, a life of flourishing, of shalom, I pray, Lord, that you would just continue to work that out in our hearts. And I ask God that you would be faithful to speak into our lives in any place where we're leaning against your will, where we're pining, Lord, for the flesh pots of Egypt uh, and looking backwards or where we're looking over the shoulders of our neighbors in covetousness. Instead, Lord, let our hearts be filled with gratitude uh, and gladness. Um, and let us be able to say with the psalmist that the lines have fallen to us in pleasant places. Uh, Let us just rejoice in your goodness and seek to follow you all of our days. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Have a good night.